everybody, and welcome to the 1853 podcast of Monmouth College. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing, and this is the 1853 podcast, a weekly program we produce throughout the academic year in which we tell you about the people, events, programs, and history that make Monmouth an outstanding national liberal arts college. In this 23rd edition of season number five, we're going to learn about a war that was fought in the early 20th century, principally in the Midwest of the United States. And that war was over the development of what became known as the modern day farm tractor. Monmouth alumnus Neil Dahlstrom has written a great new book. It's called Tractor Wars, and we're going to spend this episode talking to him about his book and learning more about what one critic has called a long-forgotten period of capitalism in U.S. agriculture when farming, business, and the free market economy diverged, divided, and conquered. dawn of the 20th century, much of American agriculture looked like it had in the middle of the 19th century. It was obviously very hard work, very labor-intensive, and according to Henry Ford, very inefficient. But that was about to change as companies worked to develop a tractor that was affordable and reliable. 1998 Monmouth alumnus Neil Dahlstrom tells that compelling story in a lively and engaging way in the critically acclaimed book Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Published earlier this year, Tractor Wars was praised in a review in the Wall Street Journal for telling the story about a time of American business history that's been overlooked. Neil's full-time job is running the archives as a historian for John Deere, who's one of the major players in the Tractor Wars. A native of the Quad Cities, Neil earned a degree in history and classics at Monmouth. Before going to work for John Deere, Neil says he didn't know much about tractors, but he discovered a fascinating story about the development of tractors while doing research for work. Or as Neil explains, the story found him. I think good stories have a way of finding you. And and for me, that's really what this was about. I'm 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 fortunate that that I, I have a day job, so I don't make my living writing books, so I can be I can be patient and and kind of find those stories. And and at some point you get so invested and so involved in the story that it kind of takes over. And and that's that's what happened to me. And and the book is very much based around um, people and decisions and events versus the um, the mechanics of the machines. And so I really approached it from a perspective that I found interesting and compelling. When did the inspiration come for you to write this book or when did you realize you had a book about this topic? Probably midway through 2018. So I into research for the 100th tractor anniversary at John Deere. And um, I, I was doing the research and, and, and then you start figuring out what you're missing. And is there actually enough content material to write a book? Um, so I probably spent the next year figuring that out because there's 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 trails that you're kind of following and you hit a dead end. And that that kind of informs the companies and the stories. Well, one of the things that was interesting for me is I didn't know if John Deere was a fit for the book. 
because at some point you get into the story and you start to kind of follow the story and that determines what you're doing. And, and I just remember having this moment saying, well, how am I going to write a book of, of the origin of the farm tractor and not include John Deere because I've worked there for 20 years. It feels like an oversight, but I want to make sure that they were enough of an integral part of the story that they fit. So I, I kind of had to go through that. What did American agriculture look like the dawn of the 20th century? Set the stage for us. Well, we're very much a, a rural economy still. More than, than half of the American population lives in, in rural America, lives on the farm. Uh, there's less than 100 million people in the United States. And, and farming is, it's very much horse farming. The, the average farm is less than 50 acres. But if you own 50 acres, you're probably only farming eight or 10 acres of it because that's all that you can accomplish um, with, with, with your team of horses. So you're not, you're not producing on all the land that's available to you or even all the land that you own. Most farm equipment is, is made of wood. So you think about walking plows and, and reapers and harvesting equipment, they're, they're all wood. What, what starts to happen at the turn of the century is more mechanization. Um, you've got big steam, what they call steam traction engines in, in the Western United States. Tractor wasn't really a term yet that, that it caught on but these are for big commercial farms. So there's a few thousand of those being sold maybe on an annual basis and that number is declining every year. It's really when they figure out that, hey, there's six and a half million farms in the country and most of them are less than 50 acres. Let's, let's build a farm for those folks and, and help them make this transition from horse farming to tractor farming or what they call power farming uh, at the time. There were, of course, a lot of companies that contributed to the development of the tractor. You focus on three. The first one is Ford, and its uh, name, uh, Henry Ford, was frustrated a great deal about the process of farming that sort of inspired him to pursue the development of the tractor. Yeah, Henry Ford grew up on the farm, so he he was a farm kid. He, He had his first encounter with a a steam engine when he was 12 and was just mesmerized um, by it. And, 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 and you could almost say that his, his dream was to build a farm tractor and the car got in his way. Um, the, the car definitely facilitated the tractor and his early experimental tractors were built from discarded automobile parts. So, so that's how he went about it. Um, but yeah, that's, he, 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 he used the word drudgery quite a bit. And he just thought very simply that you've got to take horsepower and take it from from horse flesh and turn it into mechanical power because it's more efficient. It's, it's more durable. It's more economical. So he was all about efficiency. And that's what was really driving him on the farm because he was just frustrated with the inefficiency and, and all the all the traditions of of the farm. The second big player was International Harvester. International Harvester was the giant. They were were formed in 1902 out of the McCormick Harvesting Company, um, founded by Cyrus McCormick and and a couple others. They were one of the largest companies in the United States at the time. They had revenues of $100 million a year. Um, By the time World War I breaks out, half of their revenues are outside of North America. So they've got global reach, which I think is always it's always hard for people to wrap their head around that a company in that day and age has, has such a global reach. 
but they built everything for the farm. They, they created what was called a full line, which means you can buy everything from us. And now every other farm equipment manufacturer is in a rush for acquisitions and mergers and consolidations to compete with Harvester. So, so they're the company everyone's chasing in the early 20th century. And then the third player, of course, is John Deere, who wasn't as fast out of the gate as Ford, but maybe they were the first of the finish line, you could argue. Yeah, John Deere is interesting because it, it's kind of a slow buildup. They're a tenth of the size of International Harvester, so they're not, they're not the top competitor, but they're number one in the plow business, which is the one implement every farm has. And um, they're, they're an 80-year-old company. John Deere died in 1886. He never saw a tractor in his life. Um, so this comes well after, well after that. But they're a tillage company. They build tillage equipment. In, in 1910, 1909, they make the decision to compete directly with International Harvester and start building competing lines. Um, it kind of kind of opens the gauntlet there, and, and it starts to become a free-for-all. But they're trying to figure out how to compete and they're not convinced early on if the tractor is, is a machine form that's going to stick around or if it was a passing fad. You see that phrase. Is this a fad? Is this something someone's going to adopt? And they were trying to figure out how to go into the business because they were out of money. And, and that was the biggest challenge initially is how do we do this when no more banks will loan us money because we just bought 10 companies. Ford early on was a leader in tractors, which I guess would surprise a lot of readers today. Not only that they were leaders in the tractor business, but that they made a tractor at all at one time. Yeah, when Ford makes an announcement that he's he's going to build a farm tractor, it's 1908. It comes a month after he introduces the Model T. So when he says, I'm going to build a farm tractor, everyone says, who's, who's Henry Ford? Like, I, like who, who cares? <laughs> um, a decade later, he's got 75% market share. The industry's gone from two or 3,000 machines a year from all competitors to over 100,000 a year. And Henry Ford saying, yeah, I'm going to build a million of them. So he, he very much accelerates the market, but it's a problem for competitors because potential customers are saying, well, we really like our Model T, um, so we're going to wait until Ford's is ready, and it, it won't be ready until World War I ends. How did World War I come into play with the development of the American tractors? It's, I think there's a, a lot of parts to this, this question. Um, one is it, it accelerates the, the need to um, produce more food. I mean, first and foremost. So Henry Ford brokers a deal to sell tractors to, to Great Britain because their people are starving. There's uh, a shortage in horses. So the United States is, is shipping horses overseas. So that provides this kind of market opportunity. We need to produce more. Um, there's less manpower on the farm. So we're having a hard time hiring, hiring people. Um, so those things all kind of factor into the acceleration of, of adoption and the business. Within the companies themselves, you've got, you know, today we call them supply chain issues. You've got talent issues. And, and one example is at John Deere, who started tractor development in 1912, 
1917, the head of their experimental department, one of their lead designers, um, gets pulled off of tractor development because the French armies contracted John Deere to build ambulance wagons, which Theo Brown has to design. George Mixter, the superintendent of all Deere's factories and, and a big tractor advocate, resigns and goes to Washington to work for the War Department. Um, and so all these things factor into what you can do. If all of a sudden your top talent is pulled off the project and put somewhere else, the project stalls. So you, you have all those pieces. And then you have, you have companies like um, Best and Holt, which later merged to form Caterpillar. They're building track tractors out in California and they're shipping most of them overseas for the war effort. So they don't really factor into this, this tractor war that's happening domestically in the United States because they're exporting all their machines overseas. And that's going to have implications when the war is over and that market dries up. They're both bankrupt looking for a buyer. You're listening to the 1853 podcast of Monmouth College. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing. We're chatting with 1998 Monmouth alumnus, author, and historian Neil Dahlstrom. He's talking about his new book, Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Neil says that the tractor wars defined in his book came to an end in 1928. That's when Henry Ford was forced to act in order to save his automobile. Well, we could probably make a case that tractor wars haven't ended, but the book ends in 1928. And, and really, it's, it's, it's a bookend between Henry Ford's announcement in 1908 that he's going to build a tractor. And by announcement, I mean he sent a picture to a, a publication of his experimental tractor and said, I'm interested in building a farm tractor. Um, but, but really, the book covers the next 20 years and ends abruptly in 1928 when Henry Ford pulls out of the business. And this is someone who's building over 100,000 tractors a year, has 70 to 75% market share, but his, his automobile empire is crumbling, and that impacts his ability to build farm tractors. The landscape where the tractor wars were fought, you mentioned some interesting cities, cities that are known today, but not as thought about as major cities, such as uh, Winnipeg and, uh, of course, throughout the Quad Cities as well, Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, Nebraska. That That's kind of the landscape of the, where the tractor wars were fought. Yeah, it's it's it was so interesting for me because it's, it's such a quad city story and it's such a Midwest story because these, these manufacturing hubs early on uh, were in Minneapolis and Chicago and Akron, Ohio for International Harvester and Milwaukee. And then, um, you know, of course, Moline for, for John Deere, then, the, then Waterloo, Iowa, when they acquired the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in 1918. So it's a, it's a, it's a local and regional story. Of course, it has global implications then and now. So it kind of covered all the bases for me. But at its heart, like knowing it's a it's 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 a local history in so many ways, but it doesn't feel like it. What are the lessons today for or for today in your book about leadership, organization, competition? I, I think there's a long list of of lessons. And it was funny, my 
after the first couple uh, rounds of edits, my my publisher said, you know, this is a business book. And I said, yeah, I don't really think it is. You know, it, it's it's a it's a pure history book. And they said, no, you should probably look at it again. It's a it's a business book. Um, and I think it is. I, I think there are lessons in leadership. Take those three companies. Uh, leaders incredibly different for all three. Henry Ford was, I mean, he just, he was very much a driver in innovation. Money was no object for him. It was always about what's the next thing? How do we create more volume? How do, how do we continue to innovate? Um, International Harvester was really trying to keep a stranglehold on their business. And in the midst of all of this, they're battling the United States government who uh, is trying to break the company up as a monopoly. So, so they're fighting that off while this is going on. And um, John Deere is, is kind of the slow and steady riser that we're making a long-term commitment. We really understand the market. Um, we're trying to figure out what our customer really wants, which might be different than what our customers are telling us. And so I think there's a lot of lessons in listening. There's a lot of, dis, uh, of, of lessons in, in how to make decisions uh, and also how it's okay to pass on decisions. If, if, if you like revisionist history, there's a lot of that in here of things that almost happened that didn't happen, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally. And, and, and I always think those things are, are fun. One example I always go to is the speculation that Henry Ford was, was going to acquire John Deere in 1919 and, and, and it hit the newspapers and Deere had to issue a denial. Um, but boy, what, what, what a different, what a different reality if, if Henry Ford had bought John Deere in 1919. You've worked for John Deere for a couple decades now in the archives. What, what did you learn new or about your company that maybe you didn't realize before you started to write this book? Yeah, it's a really, a really good question. I, I think first and foremost is, is we've not even begun to tap into all these stories. Um, and, and they're incredible and they're so rich. And, and the, the people behind products is just so interesting and, and fascinating. But, but I really learned, I think I learned some lessons in how do you survive? I mean, deer is 185 years old. That's not by chance. It's, it's, about, it's about doing your research, your due diligence. It's about making the right decision versus the quickest decision. And, and I think it's, a, it's kind of a misnomer about, about innovation is we often confuse that with invention. And I think this book, especially, there's lesson after lesson of just because you were first um, doesn't mean a whole lot because most of those companies that were first didn't exist five or 10 years later. So, so how do you actually build something, design something, continue to innovate, bring it to market, reinvent yourself over and over and over again. And um, for me, being a deer, this book is just packed full of those examples, um, which, which some of them were surprising to me. I thought, I thought the answer was different than what I found. That's Neil Dahlstrom. He's a 1998 Monmouth alumnus and the author of a great new book called Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. You can read more about Neil in the news section of the Monmouth College website. That address, of course, is monmouthcollege.edu news. You can also read more about Neil on his website, neildahlstrom.com.
And that's going to be a 30 for this 23rd edition of Monmouth College's 1853 podcast of the 2021-2022 school year. You can tell us what you think about this podcast by firing off an email to us at news at monmouthcollege.edu. Be sure to put podcast in the subject line. Until our next edition, this is Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing. Thanks so much for listening. So long, everybody. Have a nice day and stay healthy. Thank you, brother.